Welcome to a special edition of Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me is Vaughn. Hi, Vaughn. Hey, Simon. Um, this is a slightly different episode, and one that we probably weren't planning on recording, to be perfectly honest. But um, if you listen to our last episode, you'll be aware that we abandoned talking about politics in America right now because it's so dreadful. And... Um, yeah, there's a lot of terrible things going on in the world um, right now, and there's a lot of terrible things going on with America, and indeed with the Republicans, because, well, the Republicans are at it again, aren't they? Um, Vaughn has put together, um, I guess what you could call uh, an essay of sorts on uh, what we're titling the, the Cold Civil War, which is taking place in America right now. Um, without any further ado, um, Vaughn, do you want to just take us through that and we'll maybe chat a bit about it afterwards. Yes, I can, Simon. Um, so this this is the idea of the Cold Civil War. Um, and it really comes out of me being done with the idea that anything is not political. Um, in the last couple of days, we've heard a lot from Republicans saying not to politicize something as horrible as children being massacred in their school. And that is an abhorrent reaction from those politicians whose job it is to make legislation to prevent those atrocities from happening. So as Simon said, I put together this, this essay of sorts on the Cold Civil War. And I will provide articles for um, all the arguments that I'm making, either on Twitter or in uh, hyperlinks in a written form of this episode on impressionsofamerica.com. So we are in a cold civil war right now. And that sounds like buzzwords, so I will break it down. If we think about the events that led up to the civil war in the 1800s, there were inflection points in the years just prior that instigated the hot fighting of the war. Taking only those from 1850 onward um, in the decade leading up to the outbreak, we start with the Compromise of 1850. That was a compromise to end political confrontations between slaveholding and free states when deciding how the territories won in the Mexican-American War would enter the Union. The compromise comprised of five acts. One, uh, the transferring of territories from Texas state to federal control for the sum of $10 million, which resulted in the second act, two, creating the territories of New Mexico and Utah, which would locally decide by popular sovereignty, whether they would be free or slave territories. Three, admitting California as a free state to the union. Four, enacting stricter fugitive slave laws in free states and territories. And five, abolishing the slave trade in the District of Columbia. The Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 established the territorial boundaries of Kansas and Nebraska, 
also allowing the residents of those territories to decide locally by popular sovereignty whether they would enter the Union as free or slaveholding states. From 1854 to 1861, when Kansas was admitted as a free state, violence erupted all over Kansas, but particularly at the borders when pro-slavery, free staters, and abolitionists collided. That era is known for the bloodshed, um, electoral fraud, destruction of property, and other violent acts as the dispute went on. Ultimately, um, according to James McPherson, about 200 people were killed, over $2 million of property was damaged, and an estimated 95% of the pro-slavery votes in the election of a Kansas territorial legislature in 1855 were determined to be fraudulent. In 1856, abolitionist Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts gave a speech on the Senate floor entitled The Crimes Against Kansas, in which he denounced slave owners and the power they had in the US and alluded to slave owners' sexual connections to slavery, referring to it as, quote, the rape of a virgin territory, end quote, and arguing for the immediate admission of Kansas to the Union as a free state. In retaliation, two days later, pro-slavery representative Preston Brooks of South Carolina entered the Senate chambers and beat Sumner with a cane until he was severely injured and nearly died. The caning of Charles Sumner was a significant factor in bringing the violence of the Midwest to the East Coast, and specifically to DC. The North was largely outraged and the South largely praised Brooks for the assault. Ralph Waldo Emerson, two weeks after the attack, wrote, quote, I do not see how a barbarous community and a civilized community can constitute one state. I think we must get rid of slavery or we must get rid of freedom, end quote. In 1857, the Dred Scott decision was handed down in which the Supreme Court absolved themselves of responsibility on enslaved persons' rights by deciding the U.S. Constitution was not intended to include persons of African descent, whether freed or enslaved, as American citizens. In 1859, Kansas abolitionist John Brown, a fighter in bleeding Kansas, sought to spark a rebellion by enslaved individuals in Virginia by seizing a weapons arsenal from the Federal Armory at Harper's Ferry. No rebellion came from the 36-hour seizure of the armory, but 17 people were killed and Brown and his remaining men were captured by Robert E. Lee and Brown was tried for treason. These are only a handful of the events leading to the Civil War, but we can see parallels of these moves with the last couple decades in the U.S. Compromises that allow conservatives a mile and liberals only an inch, leading to the outbreak of deadly violence in the Midwest that is too far from legislators for them to see or act. Voter intimidation and attempts to defraud elections, violence at the Capitol that brings the issue home to legislators, the Supreme Court protecting themselves by absolving themselves of guilt, making a politicized decision to withdraw citizens' rights from freed people and hiding behind the historical resonance of the Constitution to do so. All of it in the name of protecting the state's right to choose whether to enslave its people or not. 
I'll say clearly that the Civil War was about slavery, and I do not dispute that at all. The South wanted to protect the systematic enslavement of individuals and fought violently for decades before, during, and after the war to maintain it. In recent years, we have seen so many moves by the GOP and their Democratic allies to limit the federal government and strengthen states' rights to oppress their citizens, paralleling, for modern times, those decisions made in the lead-up to the Civil War. Quickly, I want to talk about the Cold War and how it fits into this argument of the U.S. currently being in a cold civil war. A cold war, by definition, is, quote, a state of political hostility between countries characterized by threats, propaganda, and other measures short of open warfare, end quote. In the Cold War, the U.S. government used propaganda tactics and threats abroad to maintain a semblance of control. Threats, propaganda, and other tactics short of open warfare during the Cold War with the USSR included the threat of nuclear annihilation if any country in possession of atomic bombs used them, worldwide propaganda of the American way of life, including control over the cultural exports from the US to the rest of the world, such as the US ban on film exports to the UK in 1947, or the kitchen debate when Richard Nixon met with Nikita Khrushchev in 1959 at the American National Exhibition in Moscow. The domino effect theory that led to US intervention in other countries to prevent Russian and Chinese versions of communism from spreading and the space race to be the first on the moon. All of those foreign policy decisions are integral to this conversation, but I also wanna talk about domestic ones. While the US was engaged with a foreign enemy in the Cold War, there was a domestic one happening in the States. Senator Joseph McCarthy's McCarthyism from 1947 through 1954 debilitated the US by inspiring citizens to fear one another and suspect anyone in their midst of being a traitor and a communist. McCarthy's baseless claims of federal employees working for the USSR fed internal suspicions and it would have been the rantings of a conspiracy theorist, but the federal government acted separately, but still alongside these ideas. In March, 1947, President Truman issued Executive Order 9835, requiring all federal employees to declare their loyalty to the US, in practice meaning declaring they had no association or affiliation with communism or other subversive ideologies and groups. This executive order is known as the Loyalty Order, establishing the Federal Employee Loyalty Program. The US government also legitimized the hysteria it was drumming up around communism by allowing the House Committee on Un-American Activities, known as HUAC, to exert control over Hollywood by infiltrating the motion picture industry, subpoenaing well-known stars and in 1947, arresting the famed Hollywood 10 for contempt of Congress when they refused to declare whether they were communists or not. The Hollywood 10 claimed that the question itself was an infringement of their rights. The US government via HUAC remained a political pressure on Hollywood for years and was assisted by Hollywood executives who enacted the blacklist 
barring anyone from working in the industry who was known to be or su suspected of being a communist at present or in the past. McCarthyism and fears of communism also ravaged other entertainment industries and the educational spheres. From elementary schools to university, teachers were fired, programs were scrutinized, and federal and state governments framed the educational sector as a hub for indoctrinating youth into communism. Students rallied around Robin Hood as state officials sought to ban it, and other books alleged to be sympathetic to communist ideologies or written by communist sympathizers. The U.S. government waged a cold war on its citizens, threatening them with unemployment, influencing the cultural sector, exerting control over teachers and their curriculums, and attempting to ban ideas that challenged the status quo. Through all of this, the McCarthyism movement, while based in rumors that were proven false after the fact, was extremely successful because the U.S. government at all levels legitimized the fear-mongering of Senator McCarthy and his followers by using the reaches of their power to influence the public discourse and severely punish those who fought back against this propaganda. Now, I want to bring this together. We are seeing echoes of the Civil War in individuals' thinking, in the compromising of liberal ideologies for conservative gains, in the distancing of the Supreme Court from their responsibility of impartiality, and in the violence that has been and continues to erupt daily by individuals lashing out in a purposely divisive system. We are also seeing echoes of the Cold War in the US government at all levels, using its power to weaponize cultural sectors and education, infringing on the free flow of ideas and political discourse, and using the media to control narratives with topics that are guaranteed to catch your attention with buzzwords and cultural war rhetoric. And through all of it, we are seeing the deadly public reemergence of white supremacy that has been there since the start of the United States nearly 250 years ago. White supremacy is systemic and endemic to the U.S., we have known that our system was built for white people and defended for white people as made abundantly clear in the Dred Scott decision of 1857. We also know that after slavery was abolished, the country never fully incorporated black citizens or any non-white citizens into the framework of the country as can be seen by the abhorrent treatment of immigrants and the many legislative acts dedicated to infringing or stripping away their rights, whether citizens or not. I now wanna talk specifically about the modern GOP. The modern GOP has garnered control over the media, the entertainment sectors and education, leading to the systemic and constant propagandizing of conservative beliefs and values. The conspiracy theorists of a few years ago under QAnon are now legislators making decisions on our behalf. The theories they put forward are inciting violence and outrage at school board meetings where parents clash with educators over curriculums they don't know anything more about than what they heard on Fox News. Tucker Carlson does not act alone, but he is one of the most harmful people in the U.S. and is the modern but crucially more successful version of Joseph McCarthy. 
his dog whistles for white supremacists, and his diatribes on the culture wars using hooks for average people to become outraged at, quote, wokeness, are supremely dangerous. His and more widely Fox News's calls for against critical race theory, for instance, and allegations that CRT is creating lies about American history and convincing white students that they are racist are not only incorrect about the content of what CRT histories tell us or where they are read and debated as they're they argue that CRT is in elementary schools when it is in fact a graduate school level theory. But these ideas are also geared towards undermining the fundamental truth of history, that all history is an interpretation of what happened in the past, and it is subjective. There is no objective truth about history like Fox News and Tucker Carlson and the modern GOP would like you to believe. This act of undermining subjectivity is crucial to the conservative ideology of creating division. Another example of this type of division is the use of the big lie myth. When the GOP allowed and actively pushed the proliferation of the big lie, the lie that the 2020 presidential election was somehow stolen from Trump for President Biden, they had two goals. The immediate was to overturn the election, but the longer term goal was to sow doubt in the electoral system and the eligibility of some to vote. This is called disenfranchisement and has a long historical basis for being used by white supremacists to prohibit people of color from voting. Disenfranchisement is happening in a number of ways, with absurd legislation in some states, including Georgia's law prohibiting giving water or food to those standing in line waiting to vote, and also by stripping voting rights from convicts. When laws are passed or ideas are suggested about making it illegal to take birth control or have an intrauterine device or getting an abortion, it is illegal to have a uterus. As the cost of living goes up and wages stay in the same position they have for over a decade, when a gallon of gas costs more than the federal minimum wage, when people have to steal to eat or feed their children, it is illegal to be poor. When police are unchecked with racial profiling, it is illegal and often deadly to be a person of color. And when you commit a felony, you cannot vote. All of the GOP talking points of the last few decades that we have all been talking about disparately as individual instances of aggression are geared towards this one aim of division. The 2020 election infringing marginalized voters, gerrymandering, the great replacement theory and white supremacy, overturning Roe versus Wade, the refusal to abolish the filibuster, the lack of movement from Republicans on securing baby formula during the shortage, no gun control, turning a blind eye to mass murders, Fox News and all Republican media control, defunding education, dehumanizing immigrants, anti-Antifa rhetoric, military presence at protests, the book bans and don't say gay legislation, the stagnation and compromises of the Democrats since the 70s, 
the failure to effectively respond to COVID, the politicizing of masks and the pandemic prevention, anti-unionizing moves, the attacks on critical race theory, the lack of any consequences for government officials involved with the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, the refusal to raise minimum wage as the cost of living skyrockets, the emphasis on protecting billionaires and their wealth while defrauding workers as inflation rises, the hesitation to act on hate crimes, the pushback against the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement, and the increased police presence and spending everywhere have put us into a position of cold warfare that's rapidly moving towards hot. I am missing a lot of things in that list, and I want to make it, make it clear that I am not solely placing blame on Republicans. The blame is on leftists, liberals, centrists, conservatives, everyone for not stopping these historical threats as they mounted, on Democrats in office in the 1990s for appeasing conservative desires, on Reagan supporters for allowing the socially conservative evangelicals power over the government, on Rupert Murdoch and everyone involved with Fox for allowing an entertainment channel that cannot legally be called news report the news as if it's fact on everyone who fell for that convincing charade. There are so many links and connections to be made. Things I didn't mention here, including the climate disaster, corporate greed, the lack of regulation on billionaires while children starve and are murdered in cold blood. But those are all part of this too. Every facet of policy in the last 50 years has geared towards this point of cultural and political control and the division of the people. The arguments that the left are controlling the cultural media, that Disney of all companies is suddenly, quote, woke, that Nike siding with Kaepernick was a win for the left, that there's too much egregious sex on film and TV, that casting people of color is somehow a plot by leftists to push an agenda. All of this is so important to consider as cultural warfare and a way to make media even more conservative. The argument itself is that is a self-fulfilling prophecy that if the right convince us the left is controlling the media, the right win even more control over it. Convincing someone, for instance, that sex shouldn't be on screens and in our cultural ethos is how they get away with convincing someone that sexual identities are equally as immoral, that abortion is the result of an immoral sex act. It eases the argument that being gay and talking about abortions are taboo by convincing someone first that any display of sex is a personal and private discussion that if it is talked about should only be done in private. This is the same argument used for defunding sex education and shifting the burden of educating teens on sex to parents who had the same ill education. It all comes down to this. The GOP has extreme influence over the cultural sector, the media, and the police 
who enforce their ideology. And they are weaponizing all of them against the people in the same way the government exercised control in the Cold War, while events paralleled to those that led to the Civil War are rapidly mounting in a modern context. We have modern McCarthyism targeting a much larger population than the first round, being anyone left of center instead of suspected communists. And that fear is deranging a large population of the citizens, while the rest are held hostage by the demands of a few senators and House representatives. So what can we do about this? The answer is not only voting. Disenfranchisement is through the roof. The right has convinced their voters that an election is only viable if their party wins, even if that now means, as we're seeing in Pennsylvania, votes counted by mail. Do vote. It is still an active part of your duty as a citizen to vote. But you also need to speak out in your everyday lives and on every platform you have. If you have a platform and you know your audience will listen to someone who looks and sounds differently from you, raise up other voices who can speak to their experience better than you can. Do not go numb for too long. It is so tempting to look away. And in fact, it is healthy and normal to look away every once in a while when you are too overwhelmed. But you have to make your way back to opening your eyes again. You have to, or else they will steamroll everything you hold dear even further, and we will not be able to fight it. Advocate for the level you feel comfortable of police reform, but advocate for something. I advocate for the abolition of the police and a completely new system of protection to be in place. Community programs are proven to decrease crime. Food banks are proven to decrease crime. Mental health resources, childcare options, outreach to the most vulnerable in our population are all proven to decrease crime. Replace the police with social workers who are better equipped for the majority of situations to de-escalate without force. Healthcare workers who are given the power to help beyond their current remits. A small band of enforcement may be necessary, fine, but not anywhere near the current levels of militarized SWAT teams we have. The NYPD in 2020 had a budget of $6 billion. There is no reason for this in the United States of America. If we are fighting for freedom and striving for the goals we claim to aspire to, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then we must act and we must be willing to stand up against the aggressors. Advocate for gun control, including the bills that are currently stalled in the Senate, including the Bipartisan Background Checks Act, or H.R. 8, uh, or the Enhanced Background Checks Act, H.R. 1446, Jamie's Law that prohibits the sale of ammunition to specific persons, red flag laws, or pressure Congress to reinstate the federal assault rifle bans that lapsed in 2004. Advocate for taxes on the super wealthy. Advocate for a complete reimagining of how our taxes are allotted. 
challenged the idea of property taxes deciding how well your children can be educated in public schools. Challenged the idea that you have to work two jobs to afford to live. Challenged the idea that you do not have a right to recuperate from an illness when you are sick without worrying about missing a day's pay or worse, medical bankruptcy. Challenged the idea that you have to work for a full year to earn a week's vacation. We do not live to work. We work to live. And somewhere along the line, the conservatives challenged that basic principle and forced us to inverse it. Every single person in one of the wealthiest countries on earth, the self-proclaimed and allegedly freest country on earth, deserves a warm bed to sleep in at night, guaranteed three nutritious meals a day, guaranteed health care when they get sick, guaranteed time off to enjoy life, guaranteed freedom from fears that their children won't come home from school because someone fleeing police decided to massacre them in the one place outside of the home, they should be guaranteed to be safe. Guaranteed freedom from the fear that they can't go grocery shopping while being Black without a white supremacist massacring individuals going about their daily business. You deserve a better life, and there has to be a way forward. Our government officials have proven they are ineffective and cannot do the jobs that we pay them to do and chose them for. Those same government officials have decided your right to choose them for the job is no longer viable for them when they refuse to abolish the filibuster to secure that right. They all have abandoned us to make these changes for ourselves. So organize your workplaces to ensure workers' rights. Advocate for social programs that will help our communities and individuals as we work towards fixing these larger problems. Advocate for green legislation that will increase green energy and good paying jobs. Advocate for a $25 minimum wage. Call out racism when you are confronted with it, especially when the subject of that racism is not around. If a friend makes a racist joke, challenge them on it and ask them what they really mean. If they make a sexist joke or a homophobic one or a transphobic one, challenge it. We do not have time for decorum. We do not have the luxury of letting things slide. When the GOP decided over a million people could die of COVID, thousands could die by gun violence, schools did not need to be safe from guns or their ideology. And when the Supreme Court decided in Castle Rock versus Gonzalez 2005 that the police were only bound to protect capital and property, they broke the social contract of decorum. Get in their face, yell it on your platforms, challenge them. There are so many inspiring histories in the U.S. of people doing right and the government upholding inclusivity to break lines of division and bring us closer together. From immigration reform to workers' rights to civil rights acts, Medicaid and Medicare giving some health care, the Supreme Court granting the right to marry anyone you love, the entertainments that brought us together rather than sowing deep barriers, inspiring displays of patriotism from individuals such as Colin Kaepernick or Beto O'Rourke just this week choosing to stand and speak up for the victims of gun violence. In all of the instances of civil and Cold War histories I mentioned earlier, 
there were people fighting back. Abolitionists calling for the end of enslavement, students fighting back against McCarthyism, normal people using their voices to fight injustices in all facets of society. We can do this, and we historically have done this. We just cannot allow ourselves to go numb, or we risk allowing the cold civil war to go hot. Thank you for that, Vaughn. That was um, incredibly powerful and really well written. So thank, thank you for that. Um, I guess for myself, I was just kind of wanting to get a perspective on, on from your own point of view. What has kind of led to you taking the time to, to write this? Obviously, the, the content, we kind of know why you're writing this in a sense, but why speak out now what what's kind of what feels different this time around it's a good question um and thank you simon i am broken seeing the the latest largest mass shooting in a school really hit a tipping point for me, I think. Um, those kids were 10, they were 10 years old and they were fucking terrified. This man just went into their school being pursued by police and police let him stay in there for 40 minutes while they waited for backup and teachers defended their students and died defending their students. And the immediate responses from Republicans who allowed this to happen by taking all of the bribes from the NRA and refusing to pass any legislation on gun control they just, they went to thoughts and prayers and they went to don't politicize this and all of the, the template fucking responses that they must have saved to their phones. It just, it broke me. And seeing discourse about it on Twitter broke me. Remembering that I went through these active shooter drills when I was a child, that when I was 14, we had the code word for an active shooter come across the intercom and my teacher made us stay in our seats and finish a quiz because she didn't believe that there would really be a shooter. And she, she said that our drills don't really do anything because if a shooter gets in, then we're all dead anyway. So it doesn't really matter if we're at the back of the room or in the front. And we finished our quiz. Like it ended up being a surprise drill, but she didn't know that at the time. And I don't know what that decision was for her. I don't know if she was already broken from this because it wasn't the first time that we had a legitimate threat. We had many bomb threats on my campus um, in high school and, and in college. And 
active shooters on my college campus. When I was in middle school, my childhood babysitter shot up his high school. I would be fucking shocked if there's anyone left in the States who who doesn't have a personal connection to a mass shooting. I just, this, this one broke me realizing that the, the students who lived through Columbine in 1999 are in their 30s or 40s and their kids are now in elementary schools doing active shooter drills or being massacred. And thinking about how I'm now 27 and this shooter was 18 two nights ago, two days ago. He would have gone through the same active shooter drills when he was in elementary school. So are they actually effective? Because he already knows what the plan is when you're in that situation. That's a fucking sad thought. And I don't actually think there's going to be any changes. I don't think there's going to be any policy changes, but we can't do nothing. We cannot do nothing. And this is only 10 days after 10 people were murdered grocery shopping because of a white supremacist. We can't do nothing. And the only thing that I could think to do in this exact moment was that we have a platform and I could at least say, do something on our platform. But I don't know if it'll make a difference. I don't know if people will listen to this. I hope they do. But it won't be anything they don't already know. And writing this specifically, I think it's really, really, really important, really important to pull these strands together and to make it abundantly clear that every move the GOP has made, everything that feels like it's separate, like they're individual kind of decisions, they are all part of the modern GOP's ideology and their plan. The, the culture wars, talking about M&Ms changing their shoes and they're being desexified, or about Dr. Seuss books that are being pulled by the publisher, not even because of public discourse, and, and using those as a hook in the same way McCarthyism did by Hueck going into Hollywood and saying, oh, you know Dalton Trumbo, that writer that you love, he might be a communist. It, it sows fear in you. It sows fear in average people that these aren't things that are far away. They're not far away threats. They're not threats abroad. They're things in your everyday life that you need to be aware of, that the communists or the leftists are getting into your mind and they're affecting the things that affect you because they have to grasp at these fucking straws because they know they're lying. And it is important to know that when Tucker Carlson talks about 
the no longer sexy green M&M. There's a larger reason for that. It's not him just being a fucking lunatic. There is a larger calculated reason for that. And that reason is to sow division deep within our culture. So that you don't challenge Republicans, so that you don't trust leftists, so that you don't trust Democrats, so that you think Democrats are leftists. Biden is at best center-right in the rest of the world, but he's like comfortably a Tory in the UK. And for some fucking reason in the US, people believe him to be this leftist radical, that he's the new FDR. He needs to do something. He needs to stop tweeting who's going to do something. He is the fucking leader of the free world. He is one of the most powerful individuals in the world. And he proved that yesterday by bypassing Congress and signing an executive order on um, police reform. The George Floyd Act. He signed an executive order towards that yesterday. And it it took him the stroke of a pen to do something that we've been arguing about for two years since George Floyd's murder. He knows he could do something about all of these, all of these problems. And he's asking us when we're going to do something or who, who's going to do this. And I'm just really fucking sick of politicians not doing their goddamn job that we elected them to do, that we pay them to do. And every time there's a disaster, they rush off to send out their funding, fundraising templates, asking us for $12. We have to beat the Republicans in November. Can I have $12? You are sitting in the fucking Senate right now. So I had a couple more follow-up questions just on this, but um, if there's anything here which I'm either repeating ground on or that you'd rather not answer, just please let me know. So the first point I had was, just before we move on to other topics, just back on the sort of normalisation of, of living in fear with school shootings and, and that kind of thing. You've obviously been living in Ireland and then living in England for the last few years now. When you were growing up and you were doing these drills to learn about what to do if there is a shooter, at any point did was that made to feel normal as if that's what should be happening? You know, because I, I, I don't want to speak for you, but, you know, it, schools should be felt to be safer in the, in the UK. There's certainly far less um, active shooters in, in schools in the UK than in America, of course. Um, did moving abroad change your perspective on any of the stuff that you were seeing and doing when you were younger in America or were you as freaked out and as puzzled by it then prior to moving here? I think the first time we did one, I was pretty shaken by it, but it was a normal thing after a while, even not just the drills, the, bomb threats we had several bomb threats on our on our campus um people used to call them in to get out of tests it was just a fairly normal thing 
We would go sit in the back of the class and wait for an hour. Um, there was one time that somebody robbed a bank down the road from my high school and called in a bomb threat to the high school so that every police officer in the area would be at the school. And he got away. And it, that is a normal thing in the States for school kids to be expected to be trained about what to do. It's, it's almost like atomic threats in the 50s of duck and cover under your, your desk. That that kind of terror is something that just is normalized. And every once in a while, when you really think about it, it it's like, oh, why do we do this kind of thing? But you're a kid and you don't really question it that much. Or maybe I didn't. I don't know. Maybe I'm, that's too grand of a statement to be making for other people. But I don't think I really questioned, questioned it that much. I remember in college, there was a bomb threat. Um, for all of the schools in Philadelphia, there was a 4chan thread saying that somebody was going to come bomb all of the schools one day. And I was, it was my senior year and I was working in like a position of authority over 30 students in our residence hall. And I emailed them and told them, if you don't feel safe going to class tomorrow, don't go to class. And you can tell your professors that I said that and I will deal with it. Um, and my boyfriend at the time got really mad at me and said that I was overreacting. And I remember being fucking scared because there were, it was around the time that, was it Ohio State or Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh was having several bomb threats and um, pe they like found bombs on campuses. And I was really scared. Um, so I think that's the first time that I really questioned it was when I was in college. And the next day when there were supposed to be bombs, there were anti-terrorism units um, in like FBI jackets on our campus. So I don't, we don't really know what happened, if it was real or not. There were frequently active shooters on my college campus. And when I moved abroad, that was different. And I didn't really realize it was different until I heard fireworks. I think it was bonfire night, the first year I was living in London. And I like got scared because I hadn't heard fireworks or gunshots in a really long time. And I kind of desensitized my desensitivity. Um, and I got scared hearing it and realized that I have like internalized kind of trauma from living in the US with so much gun violence and immediate reactions of, of what to do when you hear a gunshot. It just... It's not okay. It's not normal. I, I am speaking from a massive place of privilege being in the UK for the last 
five years, Ireland a year before that. I haven't lived in the States in six years. And I recognize that privilege. I really do. And I want to tell people in the States that they do not have to live that way. I never would have conceived, never, of the idea that I'm allowed to have time off when I'm working. I, when I had my first job in the UK, I was working part-time and they told me I had five weeks vacation. And I was like, no, you have that wrong. I'm working part-time. And they were like, what? <laughs> and I was like, it, that's not how it's done. Like that's, that doesn't even make sense for a full-time contract. And they were like, oh, you're really American, aren't you? And I had to adapt to people being nice and to workers' rights because it didn't feel normal to me. I had to adapt to having healthcare. I have several chronic illnesses that were costing so much money in the States. And I woke up every day in college thinking about and hoping I wouldn't have to go to the ER again because it was so expensive, or I wouldn't need um, certain medication because it was so expensive, or writing to my insurance company and begging them to cover my um, monthly injections to keep my conditions in check because they decided that they weren't going to. And each injection cost $2,700 a month. And I had to beg them to pay for it. And every day I woke up stressed that I wasn't going to be able to get my medication. And when I got to the UK, I got an appointment within three weeks of moving here. And they, with a specialist, mind you, an endometriosis specialist who actually knew what he was talking about with my conditions and got me in for surgery within a couple weeks. Like, it doesn't have to be the way it is in the States. It doesn't. It's so much be better, so much better elsewhere. And we could have it in the States. We really, really, really could. There's just so much work to getting there. And I, I gave so many options and said to advocate for so many things and to challenge so many things. And I stand by all of it. And I know it sounds exhausting and it is exhausting. And it hurts to think about all of these things as interconnected. But they are. And we need to advocate for them and to challenge the things that are wrong in the States. In legislature, in um, public discourse, in personal discourse, we have to challenge these things because they, they cannot be allowed to proliferate. We have to do something. That was more than you asked. <laughs> no, I really do appreciate everything you're saying, Vaughn. It's um, shame you have to say it, but um, it's... It's powerful to hear those words. Um, my next question, moving this on a little bit, is um, thinking about 
what you were talking about with with the media and with with people like Tucker Carlson and, and with the strategy of chipping away at this sense of um, normality and of you know positioning everybody ag- against working class Americans, you know, sort of having green M and M's not being allowed to be sexy now or, or whatever it is, you know, it's in you know, we, we play these clips and we think they're ridiculous, but actually they're part of a, a larger strategy to to undermine um, democracy and, and civilization, as mm-hmm. funny as that may sound. Um, as an educator yourself and as someone who cares passionately about um, telling Republicans to fuck off, um, how, how important do you think it is and how much do you think we need it, even if it's going to be hard to get it, to introduce um some form some form of media studies and media interpretation to children and young adults uh, while they're in formal education so that they can be helped to understand the methods by which we now live in the 21st century and how these methods are being used against us be that on you know, Fox News or be that on Facebook or be that on, you know, whatever else. How much more, how much do we need to realign our education with media in the 21st century and the tactics that are being used against um, everyday people? I think that's an excellent question. Um, And we know I could go off on education for a very long time. to put it briefly, education hasn't really changed that much since the 50s and before that, like the 1800s. Um, we need to think about education in a drastically new way because you have your kind of core things of like English and math and science and reading comprehension and like those core kind of subjects. Right. And they're all very important and I don't disparage any of them, but we need to modernize it. I remember taking a computer literacy class as an elective when I was in middle school and we learned like how do you work word and like excel and then when i was in college i had to take a computer literacy course um as a gen ed and it was the exact same thing at a university like we need to think about this we are beyond just using word um we need to introduce people at a younger age to all types of digital things, um, digital media, uh, introduce kids to digital humanities. It's interesting and engaging. Um, Think about computer literacy in a a wider, more, more modernized way. And part of all of that is learning how to engage with the media. Um, I didn't want to make this about my my research, but what I do for my PhD is I look at how we 
how the government influenced Hollywood and what that means for average people, what that means for our public discourse, what that means for, in a lot of the ways, everything that I just said here about um, from the McCarthyist era of the government influencing with HUAC and Hollywood and with Tucker Carlson influencing your media, that one is more straightforwardly news. So you expect there to, well, that's a grim statement, but you expect there to be a politicized edge to it um, because that's the world we live in at the moment. And if we don't think about it more deeply, if we just take what Fox News says as fact, when they are not a news channel and cannot legally be trusted as news, which is something people need to hear a lot, it is an entertainment channel. Um, but when we when we take what Fox News says as fact, that needs to be challenged and needs to be challenged at a young age so that you think more critically about the things that you are consuming, whether it's Fox News or Christmas films or Sesame Street. Like, I don't know, anything that you watch, there are politics embedded into. And anything you read, there are politics embedded into. And there's someone who's paying for that thing to be published or that, that show to be produced or that film to be made there's someone behind it and you need to think about who's guiding these messages. What are these messages? What are the underlying messages? And with my dissertation, that's the kind of blueprint that I'm laying out of how do we do this? How do we challenge the things we're reading and watching? And how do we make better decisions when we come out of the cinema or when we turn off the TV? How do we make better decisions better decisions to be better citizens and engage with the discourses that we just took in. Um, so yes, I think we absolutely need to update education for the modern world. And that wholeheartedly includes teaching people how to be deeper and more critical thinkers when they read something and when they watch something, when they listen to something. Um, I hope that people even listening to this will think more deeply about it and know that I am a leftist, know that I do have a political, I mean, I'm not really hiding it, but I do have a political point to be made here. And you may not agree with that fully, and that's 100% fine. It's actually a wonderful thing that if you don't agree with me fully, or you don't agree with me even partly, that you're listening to this and you're thinking about it and you're you're willing to engage in a conversation about it or at least listen to one. We need more discourse, but it has to be real discourse. It has to be based in mutual trust that the other person isn't just trying to be right or trying to be heard. We need we need deeper understanding and deeper discourse and we need to calm the fuck down to be able to do it and part of that is turning off fox news that is trying to make you mad and 
getting off Twitter for at least a day and doing something that makes you happy even when you're fucking miserable like I am right now. One of the things I didn't say earlier that I do want to make clear and add is you got to celebrate the wins. Because if you don't celebrate the wins when you are being an activist or when you are fighting something, you will burn out. And the point, the point of fighting all of these things is definitely to make a better future for our children so that they can see a future and protect them in the present so that they can. But it's also to build a better world that we all want to live in, in our idealized vision of what that better world is. And if you don't stop every once in a while when you make strides towards that better world to enjoy that stride, then you're going to burn out and we're not going to make it. We're not going to get there. We have to celebrate the wins. One of my favorite quotes that is quoted in V for Vendetta is a revolution without dancing is not a revolution worth having. And I think about that a lot when I get really burnt out from these diatribes or bits of activism I do. Um, you have to enjoy the wins. So that's the only thing I'd add there. That again was not what you asked. Well, you, you did you did answer the question and then you answered other questions as well, which is fine. Um, the we could keep going for forever on this. Sadly, there's so much to cover with the issues in America um, right now. One question I'd like to kind of close this on unless there's any other point you want to get to first and please let me know if there's anything else you'd like to cover before I ask this um, which is we've obviously been very negative about the issues that we've had you know we've talked about and you know everything seems to be crumbling from healthcare to you know uh, white supremacy to you know media and education to you know, COVID deaths and, and you know, gun violence and everything else, it, it is truly awful. What, one thing that does give me hope um, is that from what I've seen and what I've interacted with Gen Z or the, the sort of younger generations that are coming up behind us now, they do seem a bit different and they do seem less willing to accept certain things that maybe generations before did and maybe that's in part because of the world they're growing up in and some of the things that weren't getting done or didn't get achieved um by you know previous generations or maybe that's to do with how they take in media I, I'm, I'm not sure but my, my question to kind of close this up was have you been inspired by what you've seen of, of younger people, be it online or, or wherever else? And, and do you think if, if we're going to see improvements and if we're going to see a better future for our children, 
it may be indeed the sort of current generation of children who may be leading that fight. I have definitely been inspired by them. Um, 1000% in seeing them in, in the news and on Twitter. Um, they've been incredible advocates for a lot of things and leading gun violence reform um, calls for gun control, especially the students from um, Parkland. Yep, I think I'm still the one. Yeah, they, there have been so many that, God damn it. But they've been, they've been amazing advocates. Um, and leading movements with Black Lives Matter. And even my students, my students here in the UK are incredible. They have so many brilliant ideas that they come to their first history class of the year of their university career, ready to fucking go and just fight the patriarchy or fight the government or just fight the system. And like, it's amazing to see that they are so clued in to politics in a way that I definitely wasn't when I was in undergrad. Um, I, didn't get really political until I was a senior in undergrad. And that's a massive privilege in myself that I recognize too. Um, but these kids are just clued in and ready to go. And it's really impressive. And then also um, in my personal life, a friend of mine, um, their kids are just powerhouses of kindness and anti-racism that they just call it out when they see it and it's inspiring so i I was just going sorry i was just going to say specifically on on this the uh, it does feel as if younger people are simply just unwilling to accept the kind of sexism and racism and even things like climate change um that previous generations were just either not willing to confront or not, you know, not wanting to kind of ruffle feathers over or whatever the case may be in in a way, which is so wonderful to see that, you know, younger people are just not accepting that they're going to grow up in a world where the the sun may, (laughs) may burn the soil or, or their, their classmates may get bullied because they're gay or black or whatever. So sorry, Von, on you go. No, all of that. They, we haven't given them a choice, really. They they just immediately from the start, they were like, oh, everything's terrible. Yeah, We're going to fight yeah. that. And we at least, we remember a time pre-9-11, if you want to put a date on it, but we remember a time that was easier, I guess, or kinder at least to children, Um, white children. And I think that is a holdback for a lot of people in our generation 
um, who aren't quite angry enough yet to be lashing out or to be standing up for things or to be challenging things in their, their interpersonal lives. And I'm not saying that nobody does. Tons of people do. We just need everyone to. Um, and I think Gen Z is better at it. But at the same time, Gen Z has their, their problematic ones too. The, the shooter two days ago was 18. Mm. And I don't think that we can, I, I think it's dangerous to think that an entire generation is one thing. Of course. Um, even with the boomers and millennials and Gen X and like, it's, it's dangerous to think that they're all one thing. And it's definitely dangerous to say, Oh, the kids got it. Like Gen Z is fighting harder. So we'll be grand. We can kick up like there, there are divides in every generation. There are divides in every aspect of humanity. And we need to be aware of that while also being able to have hope that the kids are pretty all right. There are a lot of them who are incredible people and we're lucky to have them and lucky that they haven't just given up on the world, that they do want to fight for a better future for themselves and for all of us. Um, so yes, I think Gen Z is incredible and I'm, I'm so excited to see what they do and to stand by their sides and help them do what they want to do. Um, especially if they're like my students. But we need to be cautious about even that rhetoric too, I think. Absolutely. And I think one of the great dangers we face is that you only have to look, look at America. Um, the pa- people in power seem to be getting older and older, which pushes back yeah. the time frame for younger people to be in, in those positions of power um, to the point where we're deciding which 80 year old is going to become president um and which you know 80 year old is going to be running the democratic party in which you know 80 year old is you know going to be running the supreme court or you know whatever it is and it's 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 a worry that um there are people with these state views and um sort of state appreciation for, for what it is they want out of their these positions of power and that we absolutely need fresh blood in America needs fresh blood in, in these positions of power and hopefully we will start to see that and we will see a, a younger generation come through with more quote-unquote radical ideas at least radical by American standards when it when it comes to not accepting um, certain labels that um, people on the right and even people on the center place on those who have radical notions such as you know health care for all or you know also allowing uh, machine guns into the, the hands of anybody with age 18 or, or whatever the, the so yes um absolutely fully behind trying to help uh, younger people as you say there is no there is no gen z block the way there is no you know african-american block or latino block every you know there are there are individual people and there will be um 
certain amounts of those people who will believe certain things and will move towards certain actions. And he, but even then, that will be a um, a, a gradient of 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 action um, that they will take up. But we just have to hope that um, there are enough older people who are kind of strong enough to go with them. Um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to touch upon before we finish up, Vaughn. Um, anything that we've either not gone into at all or we've only touched the surface on it. I, I, know, I know, obviously, we could talk forever about the, the, the ills with America right now. Um, but is, is there anything you'd either feel you need to get out there, even if you're just shouting at me? Or is there anything else that you'd like to kind of call upon to, you know, people who are listening to kind of, either take action or read up more on or, or you know, call a congressman or, or whatever it is? I mean, definitely do all of those things. Um, call your congresspeople. Call your state legislators. People often forget about their state legislators, but that is so crucial, especially right now, as the federal government is aiming to leave abortion up to states and that is inevitably inevitably going to be a windfall for other decisions that the supreme court wants to leave up to the states and historically states have not been very good about giving rights to people so call your state legislators demand gun control if they say it's a mental health crisis and not a gun issue demand mental health resources and also background checks for people with mental health conditions so that they cannot get guns. It is the same point. It is still gun control if they say that's a mental health crisis instead. Push that point. Don't give them an inch. Get in their face. It is, it's on all of us to be a citizen especially of the U.S. It is your duty to be critical of the state. Whether you want to or not, it is your duty as a citizen. You owe it to society and to your fellow citizens. And we have not been great about thinking about our fellow citizens in recent years. But it is your duty as an American that you look out for each other. That you do not infringe each other's life and liberty and pursuit of happiness. You have to call your legislators, your governor, your Congress people. You have to vote in the prior primaries if your state hasn't voted yet and you have to vote in the midterm elections and I hear it I do voting is the same thing that we always say just vote and things get better but like you still need to do it but it is not the only thing and we feel powerless right now we feel helpless I know that too but we have to try. I think 
the only other thing that I would say is that we could have this conversation, as you say, for hours and days and weeks and months. There are so many things that we can pick apart here. And I blitzed through the civil war lead up to the civil war and just McCarthyism blitzed through them. There are so many other resonances and interpretations that we could take and other examples we could use. And we can draw these parallels to the modern day even further and spend so much more time doing so, or we could list even more things and more examples of what the GOP has been doing and what the Democrats have not been doing or what they have been aiding and abetting with the Republicans. But the main thing that I want people to know and say is that there is a point to all of the culture wars. There is a point to um, overturning Roe. There are connections between increasing police presence and all of the GOP talking points. And we need to be aware of all of them. We need to be aware that they are interconnected so that we can work against them. The last thing I would say is when you call your Congress people, you, you need to ask them, tell them, because they are public servants. They are servants to the public. You need to tell them that the filibuster has to fucking go. The filibuster has only ever be, been used in U.S. history to block progressive bills. And it's historically been used so many times by white supremacists to maintain control and block civil rights and keep the power away from the people. The filibuster is not, is not how it is represented in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington or Parks and Rec. It's not this, this fun little stand up for your morals on the Senate floor until you're exhausted by physical exhaustion. It's, so much more than that. And that is not how it's actually used. That is a myth that is perpetrated by our cultural sector, which is something we need to be aware of. And the filibuster has to fucking go. Because if the filibuster goes, then we get voting rights. And we get um, infrastructure. And we get green legislation. Like all of these things that have been stunted and stalled in the Senate by the filibuster, we can, we can have them. And it needs to be done before November because we need voting rights. We need voting right protections against disenfranchisement before the November elections. Because if we do not have, if we do not have voter protection by the midterm elections, 
then I'm really afraid for how these elections are going to go. So make sure you vote and make sure you call for the end of the filibuster. It needs to go. Thank you, Vaughn. Um, well, from Vaughn and from myself, Simon, thank you very much for listening. And um, we'll have another episode for you in the new future. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you.